0: You have your Bibles, turn with me to the Song of Songs to chapter 5. That's kind of right in the middle of your Bible. So if you turn, you find Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, the Song of Songs. So it's right there in the middle. So if you just turn it, it's probably pretty much going to fall there. Alright, so last week we really saw the crescendo point, okay, so chapter 5, verse 1, remember I told you that the song builds up to and then digresses from, and chapter 5, verse 1, that moment of physical consummation in the honeymoon is the literal center point of the whole book, and so this morning we're coming off of the digression, and I think it's going to be really helpful. So let's read chapter 5, verse 2 through verse 7 together, and then we'll kind of keep walking through it throughout the morning. It says, this is her talking. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound, my beloved, is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with dew, my locks with the drops of the night. I had put off my garment, how could I put it back on? I had bathed in my feet, how could I soil them? My beloved put his hand to the latch, and my heart was thrilled within me. I arose to open to my beloved, and my hands dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handles of the bolt. I opened to my beloved, but my beloved had turned and gone. My soul failed me when he spoke. I sought him, but found him not. I called him, but he gave me no answer. The watchmen found me, and as they went about in the city, and they beat me, they bruised me, they took away my veil. Those watchmen of the walls. Let's pray to the Lord together this morning. Heavenly Father, every single person in this room that is more than six months old know what it's like to be hurt by and angry with someone that they love. All of us. It's part of human experience. It's painful and it's destructive and it's Agonizing. And no doubt this morning, Lord, there are many here who currently feel division with those that they love the most. Whether that is with a husband or a wife or with a mother or with a child or with their friends. That, Lord, this morning people are coming and they are hurting. And so much of the hurt that is in their life is the result of conflict with those very people that they love the most. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us insight into that reality. I pray that you would give us new hope today. I pray that you would allow us to have a fresh glimpse of reconciliation and the glories of reconciliation and the invitation that is extended by you that we might all be reconciled in the relationship where we are most loved in the relationship which we most need. Father, I pray that this morning you would reinstall hope in the lives of my people. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. So many of us grew up kind of in the Bible belt. And there is in our lives for many of us an ordinariness to the story of Jesus. Because we heard it since before we could read. I mean our parents have been telling us these stories. And by the way that's a good thing to do. But one of the problems with that is we can become used to it. We can become even bored with it. It becomes so ordinary, so typical, so a part of what we know that we don't pay it much attention anymore. But you know, if you are a person that is reading the story of Jesus in the Gospels for the very first time, it's a jarring story. It's a jarring story. I want you to think about it. The scene opens with the son of the living God being born here on the earth. There's a star hanging over this manger in Bethlehem. And the response is that the king wants to kill him. Herod wants to take him out. It's jarring. You're left really, why in the world would anyone want to kill the son of God who has come to live among real people on earth? you get in early parts of his ministry and Jesus is healing as many sick people as they can bring and he's proclaiming the, the coming of the kingdom and he's, the blind people are seeing and the deaf people are hearing and the paralyzed people are walking and the mute people are speaking. And you know what they respond by doing? They take him to the county line and they say, don't you come back, get out of here. Have you stopped to think about how jarring that is to read? Then fast forward to Holy Week. That Palm Sunday, he comes in on the beast of burden. It's a fulfillment of Zachariah's prop- prophecy, and it's also a reflection. Do you remember? We're here as uh, David is installing and coronating Solomon as the king. He's handing him, how does he do that? He tells Solomon to go and get on his mule, to go and get on David's beast of burden, to walk through the streets of Jerusalem so that they would know that he was David's choice, the son of David, to sit upon the throne, to carry out the promise of God. And So what does Jesus do on that triumphal entry Sunday? He comes in on the beast of burden, on the donkey, as the son of David, into the streets of Jerusalem as the coronated king. And they're laying down palm fronds in front of him and their cloaks are there and they're shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, the son of David, Hosanna to the highest. And finally, it feels like the protagonist of this story is getting his due. Finally, it feels like Jesus is being recognized except by Friday. A different crowd in the same city would be shouting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. It's a jarring story, isn't it? And you know, Holy Week, and in fact, all of Jesus' life, is a reminder of the fickle nature of human relationships. It's a reminder. It it brings into our minds what what the author of Hebrews tells us when it says that, that Jesus endured everything that we endure. He knows our pain firsthand. That is, Jesus knows what it's like to be turned on and wounded by hurt, even killed by the people that you love the most, that Jesus can identify with it. And our experiences are, of course, the same, even compounded by the fact that we are sinners too, and we hurt people too, and we invite pain in other people's lives as well. And that's what brings us to the scene here in the Song of Songs in chapter 5 when we see two people who have loved one another and have, have proclaimed their love with one another, have, have bonded in marriage because of their love for one another, have consummated that love physically with one another in chapter 5, verse 1. But they're going to bring pain to one another. They're going to bring hurt to each other. You remember what I, what I told you last week as we come into the song that we, we kind of should see this as, as an album of songs written from an idyllic perspective on, on the wedding of Solomon and the Shulamite bride. That We're, we're given this, this picture of what it's supposed to look like and how we're supposed to relate to one another, but also it's given to us as a, as a living, breathing parable of, of what our relationship with the living God is supposed to be like, our relationship with Him through Christ And so we started looking at these three scenes that ask these three dreamy questions. And we looked at the first two last week. The first one, if you want to fill in your blanks this morning, was, what if my dream doesn't last? And so we get this picture of of an insecure bride being comforted by the love of of an assuring husband. And it points us forward to the secure love that we have in Christ the second question we looked at is: What if Eden is just a dream? What if Eden is a fairy tale? What if it's what if it's not real? What if what if the idealism that we find there is is not true? And what we saw is that that wholesome desire leads to shameless delight, and it points us forward to this mysterious Edenic picture that we're one day all going to realize. And Fullness, when the new heavens and the new earth are consummated in Christ. And that brings us to the question that we're going to talk about this morning. What if my dream is a nightmare? What if my dream is a nightmare? You know the bad part about honeymoons? The bad part about honeymoons is they have to end, right? None of y'all are still on your honeymoon. Our ministry assistant, Kaylee, she was married yesterday. And so today, she's on her honeymoon. But you know what? A week from Monday, she's going to be back dealing with me again. Honeymoons come to an end. It's the the hardship. And when honeymoons come to the end, reality begins to set in. And even those that we once thought we could never be apart from, those that we thought were were the answer to problems that we were facing, actually begin to bring pain and difficulty and hardship into our lives. You'll remember back in chapter 3 of the song, how the bride has this dream on her wedding night, the night before her wedding, on the eve of her wedding, and how she's kind of voicing these insecurities. What we see here is that she is having another dream. I slept, but my heart was awake. Isn't that powerful poetry? I slept, because all of us immediately know what she's talking about, don't we? Where you go to sleep, but you're not really asleep. You go to sleep, and and really your worst nightmares become realities as you think about what's happening. And I think what we see, especially here in the first seven verses, chapter five, verse two through verse seven, is we're hearing her in this dream, and it's hard to really know if this is a dream about something that's actually taking place, or if this is just an insecurity and a concern that she has. But she says, "I'm dreaming, but I'm not. Re- I'm sleeping, but I'm not resting. I'm, I'm having a dream, but it's not so much a dream It's more of a nightmare." And so she begins to to tell the story of, of how she worked and prepared for her husband to come home. She had made just the right dinner with all of his favorite things. And she had set the table and she had lit the candles. And she had waited on him to come home, probably wanting to surprise him, looking forward to maybe some of the experiences that they had on their honeymoon. And so she waited and she waited. And she waited, and it may have gotten all the way to midnight. It says says in there that his hair is wet with dew. It means it's after midnight before he gets home. So she waits all night long, eventually eating that cold dinner that she had worked so hard to prepare, blowing out the candles, and then she just puts herself to bed, and she locks the door behind her. And so you can imagine the frustration that's built up in her, the disappointment that's, that she's experiencing, the, the loneliness that she knows. Well, after midnight, here comes old Prince Charmin ready to knock on the door. And he has obviously the whole way home, perhaps all day long, been thinking about being with his wife. And so he comes and he nodded. And you would have thought, you would have thought the fact that she locked her bedroom door would have been a good clue to Prince Charmin here, but he knocks anyway. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. He comes to her and he gives her these five pet names, right? Buttering her up, maybe. And he says, I've been thinking about you all day. I'm I'm excited to be with you. I'm I'm ready to be received by you. And you know how she responds? You know, I've already taken my cloak off. I've washed my feet. Like getting up, putting the robe on, putting on my, it's like a whole big thing. Let's just, let's just think about this and I'm tired and I have a headache, right? I don't know if any of y'all can relate to this story. By the way, this was written 3,000 years ago. Y'all think the Bible's relevant? And so he waits and he tries to coax her out, but she won't come. And eventually he becomes frustrated and he is aggravated and he's disappointed and he leaves. But in the process of all this, her, her mood changes and her, her thoughts change. And she says, you know what, that's crazy. Let bygones be bygones. And she jumps up and she doesn't even put on a robe or a slipper. She runs to the door, but by the time she gets there, he's gone away. And so what we have here is a couple that's unreconciled. What we have here is a couple that is in conflict with one another. And I think a pattern begins to emerge here in their conflict that is a pattern that is common among many marriages. And not just marriages. Like I'm talking primarily about marriage this morning, but I think the same thing is true about relationships between parents and their kids. I think the same thing is is true about um, your your friendships, relationships that you have with one another in the church. And then preeminently true about the person with whom you're supposed to be most committed in your marriage relationship. But I want you to think about the pattern that we see. The first thing that you notice about each of them is that this is a good-willed couple. They have goodwill toward one another. Here's why I say that, okay? It says here that she has put off her garment that's an implication that she kind of gotten gussied up, you know what I mean? Like she had gotten all dressed up, like she had prepared herself for her man so that he would be impressed and that he would be attracted and appeased by her when he saw her, like she's gotten her nails done just right and her makeup just right and her hair just right, everything is just right. In other words, she wants to be attractive to her husband. She wants to be right with her husband. She wants to enjoy her. Not only that, but at the, at the end, we see how quickly she's won over by him, don't we? Like, he comes home after midnight having all these expectations and all these thoughts, and her immediate reaction is, no way, Jose, I'm tired. Get away from me. But, um, but very quickly thereafter, she says, well, okay, she's won over quickly. And so, what we see in the Shulamite bride is that she is a well-intentioned person. She doesn't intend to. She doesn't desire to have conflict. Is what I'm saying. We see the same thing with him. He comes to her, and he does. He uses these five different names. So he comes and he says, um, he, he says, first of all, my beloved. He, she's referred to as my beloved. Then my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect love. Okay, like he's poured it on thick here, isn't he? He's pouring it on thick here, and and so what we're able to see is that he's coming, and he's not making a demand. He's coming in, and essentially these are these are very gentle and affectionate terms that he's coming in with with affection. And I'm sure he knows he's coming home too late. You know what I'm saying? He's not dumb. He just thinks it's going to be fine. I just, got to, I, just got to, I just got to sweet talk her a little bit. I just got to hug her a little bit. I just got to remind her that I'm here. I've got to remind her that this isn't going to be every night. I've got to. And so what we see from him also is that he desires to be right with his wife. And I think this is where most couples start. Most couples aren't in conflict with one another because they dislike each other. Most couples aren't in conflict with each other because they have malice or hold contempt for their spouse. At least not immediately. Most couples begin with goodwill toward one another. With a desire to be right with one another. With a desire to be close with one another. With a desire to enjoy each other. Now over enough time, certainly it can deteriorate into malice and it can deteriorate into meanness. But it doesn't usually start there. And so why is it then they're at odds? Well, I think that gets to the second part of the pattern that we see. We see unmet expectations, don't we? It it reminds me of something that James says in James chapter 4. James says, do you know why you quarrel? This is James chapter 4, verse 1. I would so encourage you to go and read these verses on your own today. Do you know why you quarrel? Because you want and do not have. Because you have expectations of what your life ought to be like, you have expectations of how that person ought to treat you, you have expectations for what the Lord ought to give you, and those expectations are going unmet. That at the essence of most conflict, according to James, is that you have expectations that are going unmet, you have desires and wants that you're not realizing and not reaching. My goodness, my goodness. Think about our couple here. So she has this expectation that her husband is going to come home and eat dinner with her and romance her and spend time with her and no doubt whisper all of the sweet nothings that we read about in the first four verses of this song and our first four chapters of this song. And she's excited to, to experience more friendship with him and to talk about her day and to talk about his day and to see what all's going on. And then this joker just doesn't show up. And she's frustrated, and she's disappointed. Th- th- think about him. All day long, he's been working hard, and, and he, he really, I-, I love both of them dra- dra- uh, dramatize what they're saying. Like, both of them are pretty dramatic, and that's what we do when we're in conflict, right? Like, she's like, well, you know, it's really hard for me to put on my cloak. And he comes on, he's like, look, the sweat of the dew is running down my brow. Like, come on, bro. You know? But he comes home and he's been been given all these rulings and judgments throughout the day. You know, being the king over all of the millions of God's people here. And he comes home and his expectation is that his bride is going to be waiting on his ever step. And that he's going to come through the door and be handed a box of chocolates and a bouquet of roses. And showered with a parade and praise there in the house. And she's got the door locked and she's asleep. Right? Right? Unmet expectations. And my goodness, my goodness, how many times has that played out in your marriage? How many times has that played out in your relationships with your kids? How many times has that played out in your relationship with your friends? that you had a particular expectation of what that person was supposed to provide in your life and bring into your life or do, and that, gets, that falls up short. And when that falls up short, what happens? Internally, we begin getting frustrated. And frustration is just a low boil anger that we don't want to call anger. And so I think what James 4 encourages us as we feel maybe those, that internal tension building inside of us is to begin asking the question, what is it that I'm wanting that I'm not getting? What is it that I'm wanting that I'm not getting? Because you see, that brings us to the next part of the, of the pattern. Because very often, what we want that we're not getting, those unmet expectations that are in our life are the result of selfishness in our lives. So, the question is not just why am I not getting that I'm not wanting, but is the desire that I have self centered to begin with? Here's what we do we like to reconstruct the law of Christ so that Christ is not at the center, but so that we are at the center of it. Think about what the law of Christ is love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your strength, love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, it's outwardly focused, isn't it? But what do we say? How was I treated? why don't they notice me? Why don't they see what I'm doing? Why aren't they waiting up on me? Why don't they live according to what I need and what I want and what I'm looking for? And so we literally reconstruct the law so that we have other people that we love the very most and they're transgressing a law they don't even know about that we have constructed that doesn't even reflect the law of Christ. And so what do we see in this young couple? He comes home and he acts selfishly. Can we just call it? He acts selfishly. He expects her to wait on him until the wee hours of the morning and then to jump at his beck and call. And so he acts selfishly. But what does she do? She reacts selfishly. She does it with the dramatic way that she responds. She does it by tantalizing him, by essentially saying, I'm laying under these sheets with nothing but the doors locked." nanny nanny boo boo. Right? And so he acts selfishly, she reacts selfishly, and so they enter into this selfishness cycle, don't they? They enter into this selfishness cycle. You see, where selfishness begets selfishness, it leads to frustration. And when you have frustration, frustration leads to what? Distance. Isn't that what we have here in this couple? Isn't that what they have? They come in, they're they're well-intentioned, they're good-willed toward one another, they both have expectations, those expectations are not met. He acts selfishly, she reacts selfishly, and now they're apart. There's distance. And let me give you a warning, brothers and sisters, that where there is enough distance over enough time, resentment begins to grow. Where there's enough distance over enough time, resentment and contempt begins to set in. And now it's not two good-willed people. It's two angry people. It's two mad people. It's two people who are willing to hurt one another so that they can show that their position is the righteous one, so that they can show that their position is the proper one, so that they can show that they're the one that is being mistreated. And when you get to that place, place, it's a hard place to be. And so there's a decision that's facing this couple now they have to choose between two paths. They either have to choose the path of reconciliation or the path of resentment, don't they? We can see it. Certainly, they felt it. That they either have to both double down and go to their corners and wait and and expect the other person to come and make it right with them or, or, or they have to decide, I'm going to go in pursuit. I'm going to respond to this conflict in a way that overcomes the distance that is in between us. That is, they have to decide whether or not they're going to keep the cycle going or if they're going to reverse the cycle, don't they? That's the decision that's facing them. We're given the the, uh, picture of the bride first, and it's a beautiful picture. In verse 7, you'll see that it says that the watchmen found me as they went in the city. They beat me. They bruised me. They took away my veil. Now, the way I understand watchman there is a, an allusion to her conscience that what she's experiencing here. They're, they're, no queen is going to be beat up by the security guards, okay? The security guards are there to protect the queen. The watchman is her conscience. She's feeling guilty. She's feeling ashamed. She's feeling, she's feeling the, the loneliness of being, of being separated. And so she does something that I think is really important for us to see that I think is really remarkable in verse 8. She turns to her maidens in, the, in, in her chamber and she says, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved, that you tell him I am sick with love. And they look back to him and they say, what is your beloved more than another? What, what makes him so special? You see what's amazing here? She looks to her maidens. And this scene plays out over the rest of of chapter 5 and 6. She looks at him and she says, I need help. Isn't that powerful? We we think counseling and mediation and and having someone else step into our marriages to to help us be right with one another is a modern invention. And here we are with a song, 3,000 years old, and just as so often is the picture, the bride is the one who is humble enough to look to those that are around her and say, help me. I want to be right with my husband. Help me. I want to be united with him. Help me. I want to overcome this distance so that we're okay again, so that we can experience even deeper love than what we've all Ready, known. Can I just stop for a second and ask you, are you too proud to get help if you need it? Are you too proud to get help if you need it? All of your friends and all of your brothers and sisters in your church and all of your pastors and all of your kids even think that your marriage is perfect while both of you are actually in separate corners growing in resentment toward one another. Don't wait until you get into the intensive care unit and your relationship to find some help. Reach out to people like this young bride and say, help me be right with my husband. And I love their response. Their response is, well, while we're looking, remind us why you love him so much. Remind us why you love him so much. And essentially what they have her do is rehearse the speech that she's going to share presumably with her beloved when she finds him. And so she begins to meditate on her husband. And I think we're supposed to do that. I think we're supposed to... Think about Proverbs 31. And it talks about the the virtuous woman, a wife of value, being praised, being meditated upon, and then extolled in her household. And so the maidens are doing... Just that, remind us why he's so wonderful so that you'll know exactly what you want and to prepare her heart to be united with her husband again. And so she begins to talk and the first thing that she notices, and you'll see this in verse 10, is she notices that, or she says about him that he's an honorable man. He's an honorable man. Verse 10, my beloved is radiant and ruddy. He is distinguished among 10,000. In other words, the Shulamite, she says, there's a charisma about my husband that I just adore. She, she said, when he's among the colleagues, among all of the elders and the rulers of Jerusalem, I see him and he stands head and shoulders in my mind above all of them. That, that he is a man of, of honor. He is a man of, that is deserving of respect. He is a man that is worthy of my adoration and admiration of him. You know, that's something I hear a lot. I hear a lot from brothers who would say this. I am much more respected in my job than I am in my home. That my colleagues at work have a higher opinion of me than my wife and kids seem to. And what I find is very often that's not even true. That's not even true. It's just the difference in the way the relationship has evolved and developed. And, and, and certainly, his wife and kids know flaws and sins on his that, that he has committed better than perhaps his colleagues at work. But when you have a brother and he's filled with respect at work and contempt at home, there is space there for distance. Listen, wives, perhaps more than anything else, what your husband needs to know is that he's a man of honor in your eyes. That he's a man that you admire and respect. That he's a man that's ready to lay down his life for the good of the family. That that he's a man that is that is that is um, that is committed to. Uh, by his wife and his kids, that, they, that there is a, there's an element of, of, of valor and courage that you see. I mean, there, there, there's, a, there's a uniqueness so that in your eyes, in the eyes of your kids, that, you, that he sends head and shoulders above every other man. There was a study done that, that's in the book Love and Respect, and it says basically they surveyed all of these men, and they said if you could be uh, unloved but admired, or uh, alone and unloved but respected, would you prefer that, or would you prefer to be loved and adored but disrespected? And seventy percent of men said, "I would rather be alone but respected." It's, it's fuel in the tank. It's fuel in the tank. And so here's this young you know, young bride. She says, "He's an honorable man. I love that about him." But that's not all that she says. She says, "Not only is he an honorable man, but he's a desirable lover. He's a desirable lover." Look at what she says uh, there in. Look at verse 12. She says, His eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk. Sitting in a full pool. So I want you to think about what that imagery, what that poetry is meant to communicate. It's, it's meant to communicate something about peacefulness, tranquility, right? Pools of water, um, uh, doves. In, in his eyes, there's a, there's a gentleness. That way, that is, that she says, I find that just the, the, the character, the gentle, peaceful nature of my husband's character, I find that awesome. I find that wonderful. I find that attractive. But she doesn't stop there. That's not enough. That's not enough. She then begins to talk about his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. Now, we don't talk like that very often. At least I hope you don't. That's weird. Don't do that. But she's not, so she she goes another level. She says, not only does he have a peaceful, gentle character, but he has a a sweet and pleasant demeanor, right? Right? He's a sweet and pleasant, he, he's, he's fun to be around. He's an enjoyable person. Like, like he, he, he brightens up the room. He brightens up my day. I love to laugh at all of his jokes. I, I, I love the way that he plays with all the kids. That's not all she says, though. She says, then she gets into his physicality, right? His arms are rods of gold set with jewelry. His body is polished ivory, bedecked with sapphires. His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, choice as the cedars. She says, So he has this wonderful character and this delightful demeanor, but I find him physically attractive. That is, in verse 16, what she ultimately says is his mouth is most sweet and he is altogether desirable. Can I just let you ladies in on a secret? that like none of the guys are going to tell you probably, they need to know that you find them desirable. Guys are too proud to say it. They'll never, they'll never come out and say it. But men are insecure about the way they look too. And men are insecure about what you think about them too. They need to know in your life that you find them attractive and desirable and that you want to be with them. Oh, this bride, she's determined to say it. She's determined to overcome this distance and to reverse the cycle and to enter into his life and to, to to bring joy to him and to bring honor to him and to let him know that she finds him desirable and maybe most beautiful at all. Not only does she see him as an honorable man and as a desirable lover, but she sees him as an enjoyable friend. See that second part of verse 16? This is my beloved and this is my friend. This is my friend. In other words... When we're at odds with one another, Solomon, I don't have my confidant. I don't have my most trusted advisor. I don't have the person that I enjoy spending the most time with. I, I, I don't have the person that I like to tell all about my day. I, I don't have the person that I like to tell about the funny thing Miss, you know, Aunt B did down the road. I've lost my friend. You want to know how your marriage is going to make it? Your friends. Your friends. There, there, I, I tell uh, in, in pre marriage counseling, one of the things that I tell parents, I came across a study years ago, and, and basically they, they went and they surveyed just hundreds of, of couples that had made it in, in their marriage past the 50 year mark, okay? Now, we have some 50 year marriages in here, but they're becoming increasingly rare in our society, aren't they? So we have a thing or two that we ought to be able to learn. And so what they were trying to find is a common thread among those 50-year-old, 5 decades of marriage, to see what might be able to be applied in the other relationships. And what they discovered was that there was one common thread across socioeconomic uh, lines, across political lines, across, um, across regional areas, um, uh, across all kinds of barriers that you can imagine. The one common thread that they were able to find is that each one of those, in those couples said, that's my best friend. That's the person I like to go to the mountains with. That's the person I want to go to the beach with. That, that's the person I enjoy coming home to every, every evening. Do you want to give your kids security? I bet you do. Do you know what will bring security in the life of your children? Parents that laugh together. Parents that smile when they're with one another. Parents that actually like to talk to each other. Parents that have a friendship that sets the pattern for what their marriage is going to look like one day. And so the question comes to this bride that we get from this bride that that comes to us is are you willing to go and tell him, ma'am? Brides, Are you willing to go to him to tell him that he's an honorable man and that he's a desirable lover and that he's an enjoyable friend because here she is and she's going in pursuit of him. She's not waiting back, just keeping all of these things to herself. She's intent on finding her husband and reversing the cycle because she wants to be right with him again. But what all of us know is that it takes two to reconcile, doesn't it? Some of you have went through divorces And you wanted to be reconciled, but it takes two to reconcile. Some of you are at odds right now, and if it was up to you, you are living out Romans chapter 12, so far as it is with me, live peaceably with all men, and you are ready in that moment to be reconciled to them, but you can't reconcile alone. And I want you to hear me say that, brothers and sisters. Some of you are the hard-headed ones. Some of you are the hard-hearted ones. Some of you are the ones whose conscience has been bound, and they cannot make it right with you if you are unwilling to receive them if you're unwilling to reconcile and get over yourself too because let me promise whatever the conflict is you're probably not entirely right either so the question comes up, how is the husband going to receive her? How, how is Solomon? He's, he's there and he's kind of he's stonewalled. He was sulking the last that we say. And, and, and so she's coming and you don't really know. And she doesn't really know. Is he going to explode in anger? Is he going to lecture her on all the reasons that she shouldn't have treated him that way? Has he stored up ammunition that he's ready to fire at her? Or, 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 or is his heart the same as her heart? That is, are we, do we have 2 goodwilled people? It takes two good-willed people to reconcile here. To have two repentant people, two people who are willing to put selfishness to bed. By the way, when they were acting selfishly, who got what they wanted? She wanted, to be with, she wanted to enjoy time with her husband. He wanted to enjoy time with his wife. Both of them end up apart. Selfishness frays the relationship, and nobody gets what they want. So the question is, are they going to continue the pattern, or are they going to reverse the pattern? Listen to, what he, listen to how he responds. He sees his bride, and he says... Verse 4, you are beautiful as Tizra, my love. Lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. I don't know about y'all, I think that's a pretty good start. I think that's a pretty good start. Look at what he says. I think this is so cool. So he's been rehearsing a speech of his own. Because I promise you, I know guys, guys can't think of that on the spot, okay? He's been meditating on this one a little bit. He's been preparing a speech. He knows he's messed up, and he's messed up big, and he's got to get it just right. And so he's rehearsed the speech, and he's ready to go, and he says, you are beautiful, and you are awesome. That is, he goes, and what he's saying to her, really in verses 4 through 7, is, I find you irresistible. I find you irresistible. You've come to me and my first inclination is not to be resistant. My first inclination is not to lecture you. My first inclination is not to stand in my self-righteous ivory of tower and tell you all the ways that you've fallen, uh, felled me. My first inclination, my instinct is to say, I can't resist you. I love you. I find you both beautiful and awesome. Now, what is that talking about? Beauty is outward, isn't it? there's something to it that no matter what takes place, no, no matter how many years go by, that there must be this outward attraction. I find you lovely, beautiful. I'm attracted to you. You're, you're, you're physically irresistible to me. But this awesomeness is talking about a strength of character, like a military that's going into battle. The army has set up and the flags are waving and the, and the, and the horns are being prepared to, to, to blow and the bayonets have been fixed and you look out over them and it sends a shudder down your spine because you know that that army is resolved. You know that that army is strong, that they are powerful and he goes to his bride who has, by the way, overcome all kinds of insecurities, all kinds of what would be expected to be social protocols because she is a strong character and is going over all of that so that she can speak to her husband and be right with her husband and he recognizes the sinner and he says I find you irresistible outwardly and physically but I also find you irresistible with your inward strength of character then in other words I love the total package baby I love the total package I love everything about you I love you inside and out I love how you look I love who you are I love what makes you you brothers brothers your bride needs to know that about you She needs to know that about you, that you love all of who she is you love her character, you love her personality, you know how God made her, that you love her physically, that you're attracted to her, that you find her irresistible. And I am convinced that many of you, that is true, you find them irresistible, but your response in conflict is to prove that you're right. It is to prove that your position is the the honorable and righteous position. And with your, your reaction and with your words, you're communicating something that's not in your heart, that I can resist you, I can push you away, I can hold you at a distance unless you come to me on my terms. Oh, brothers, that's not how we lead our homes. That's not how we lead our homes. That's not how we protect our lives. That's not how we draw near to them. We have to let them know they're irresistible to us. Look at, look at what else he says. Look at verse 8. He says, you're not just irresistible, you're incomparable. I love this. Verse 8, there are 60 queens. By the way, That's a big number. There are 60 queens. There are 80 concubines. We're at 140, y'all. And virgins, without number. Infinite. But my dove, my perfect one, is the what? Only one. He says, there are women that all of Israel would think are beautiful. There are women that all of Israel would think are desirable. There are women that all of Israel would desire, but I desire one. I only need one because none of them win a comparison against you. You're my one. You're my only one. And this is why we're remembering this is an idyllic psalm because we know what happens in Solomon's life, right? But he's looking back and he's saying, nobody compares with you. Guys, can we just be honest? That our wives feel comparison and the pressure of comparison in a way that we just don't. That they feel comparison in the way that they mother. They feel comparison in the way they they keep house. They they feel uh, a unique uh, comparison pressure when they go to work every day. They feel comparisons with all of the people on TV and all of the projected images of what their bodies are supposed to adhere to and what they're supposed to look like. And, and, and honestly, if you look at the expectations of a 21st century mother or a wife, it is—they're they're impossible. They're impossible. And so all day, the world is constantly telling our wives they do not measure up and they are not good enough and they are not the one. And so they have to come home to a place where there is a man who cares about the soul of his wife, the heart of his wife, who believes it from the crown of his head to the soles of his feet. No, baby, you are the one. There is nobody that compares like you. You are the mother. You are the woman in our house. You are the apple of my eye. And there is not a model on television There is not a mother that goes to work that can compare to you in my eyes. Oh, they need to hear it. Do you want to know why pornography is so lethal to your marriage? It is a declaration that she isn't enough. That she can't satisfy. That she doesn't compare. Do you want to know why flirting is so painful? Because it lets her know There might be somebody else that can catch your eye. Texting someone of the opposite. sex You don't want to know why, why it brings up such insecurity? Because it looks like there may be more than just one. She has to know. She has to know she's the one. She has to know that there is nobody in your mind that she compares to. Finally, look at what he says. Verse 10. I think this is the most beautiful one yet. Who is this? Who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun. And then he repeats that comment about the awesomeness of the army. I want you to think about that imagery there. He's talking about something that's otherworldly. In other words, what he's saying is you're not just irresistible. You're not just incomparable. You're breathtaking to me. There, There is a celestial nature to our love that is impossible to fully articulate. I want you to think about this. Every single morning, if you wake up and the sun is rising, what do you do? You look at it, don't you? You can't even help yourself. You come home on the right day down 78 and you see the sun beginning to set behind the mountains. And you'll almost drive your car off into the ditch because you're sitting there looking and taking in the, the sunset. And it just takes your breath away. You go in the middle of, a, of the night and there's a huge towering full moon. And you'll call everybody, hey, y'all come see this. Look at the moon tonight. Every morning at dawn, that fresh dew on the ground, it's like there's a a fresh start. It's a reminder that the mercies of God are new every morning, isn't it? And you know what is true about the moon and the sun and the dawn? You never get tired of them. You can look at them every day for the rest of your life and you're still awestruck. You're still overcome. You still find yourself gazing without thought. It's a reflex. And that is the picture of how a wife needs her husband to respond to her. It doesn't matter how many years pass doesn't matter how many hard seasons we go through. It doesn't matter what we experience together. It doesn't matter how many sicknesses we encounter. doesn't matter how our bodies physically diminish. What you can be certain of is that I will never get tired of you. I will never stop looking at you and gazing upon you because that's, that's my reflex. And every single morning of my life, I want you to know you take my breath away. Brothers, how many of our wives believe that we're bored with them? How many of our wives believe that we're bored with them? How many of our wives come and they extend affection and we just move about our day without another thought? How many of our wives can go days at a time without a kind or thoughtful word from us? How easy is it for us while they're there excited to see us and excited to have a conversation with us for us to retreat after a long day at work to just go and lay on the couch and totally withdraw. And if I were to ask you, does your wife take your breath away? Every single one of you would say, yes, of course she does. But she, in her heart of hearts, has questions because you seem like you're bored. No, 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 no. no. When you come home after a long day, she is the sun setting in your home. When you wake up after a restless night, she, her kindness, her demeanor is a reminder like the dew on the ground of the fresh mercies of God. And so what we see here between this couple is that when both of them were selfish, neither of them got what they wanted. But I've read the rest of the book. And when both of them deny themselves and begin looking outwardly rather than inwardly, they both get what they want. And it's a pattern that shows up throughout the Bible that is that we cannot miss. That if you try to save your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life, you will save it. That living comes by dying. That living, even in marriage, that finds itself through the pathway of the cross, of laying down what I want and laying down what I desire and laying down what my expectations are because I want to elevate and extol and be reconciled with someone else. Now, no doubt, there are some of you this morning and you are with me. And you would say, that's exactly what I want. But there's a hard-hearted husband waiting at your house. There's a hard-hearted wife waiting at your house. Or perhaps they're here and it's, it's, these words are, are like the parable of the sower and they're, they're falling on that rocky soil. and They're not taking root. And, and you're just like, well, what hope is there in, in this for me? And that's where I would point you to the big story. That's where I would point you to the big picture. That if that's where you are, you need to be Re husbanded, re wifed in some sense by Jesus. By Jesus. Because what we have here in our story is a repentant wife going and being received by what is also a repentant husband. But what all of you know is that in this world and in this sin area, in this era of sin in which our relationships are filled with conflict and fickleness and self righteousness, very often that is not, a, not the case. But what the Bible teaches us is that whenever God's people humble themselves and whenever God's people are repentant, whenever Jesus' disciples come to repentance, he is the faithful groom who is always there to receive them every time, regardless of your unfaithfulness regardless of your fallenness, regardless of your trying to recalibrate all of the law so that you are at the center, you come to the end of yourself and you repent and you run. And what you find is that you're not even the one seeking him. He's been seeking you and running after you the whole time. That there is one relationship in all of history that is not fickle. And it is the relationship with Christ. With Christ. And so this morning, Maybe you don't have a husband and you've always wanted one. What what can I offer you? I can offer you a greater husband. Maybe you have a husband who will not be reconciled with you. What can I offer you? I can offer you a greater husband. Maybe you have a wife who is filled with contempt towards you and anger towards you and doesn't honor you. And Christ says, come and be with me and one day I will elevate you and my glory will be your glory so that you will know all the honor that I know. invitation to come and die, to get over yourself, to live with with an outward perspective is really an invitation to come and to be satisfied in Christ, to be satisfied in Christ, and to know that's a relationship that will never sour. Let's pray to the Lord together. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, and what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.